Well, our passages today are Isaiah chapter 9. It's been our passage for this whole month of Advent as we prepare for celebrating Christmas next week. And a second passage, 1 Timothy 3.16. Would you stand as I read Isaiah 9 for us here? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then 1 Timothy 3.16 simply says this, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Let's pray. Father, as we pray today together and lift our hearts and minds to you asking that you would bless us with understanding and acceptance of your word I pray that your spirit would work within us that it would accomplish exactly that and more that you would guide us into life everlasting that you would teach us all truth that you would reveal to us the mysteries of the gospel and that you would indeed prepare us for heaven and it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, one of Jesus' four titles from Isaiah 9 is that the child to be born will be called Mighty God. Paul in 1 Timothy 3 tells us that God was manifested in the flesh. And that's a monumental statement that addresses both the deity and humanity of Christ. So we'll talk for a moment about the deity of Christ. We know that Jesus made some amazing claims about himself, but do we need to believe them? It's a legitimate question. It's a good question to wrestle with. Must we consider Jesus God and give him our worship? After all, there are times when Jesus distinguishes himself, right? As the son from the father and also even distinguishes himself from the spirit. For example, in, in John 5... Verse 19, we find the verse, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And a few verses later, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So in these two verses, Jesus says that it is the father who gives the son life and delegates to him authority. So is the son simply a, a superhuman being given special power and authority by the father? No, but we have to use scripture to prove that. It's not just our own opinion that, that this is right or something that we were taught in Sunday school, but instead we have to substantiate everything that we say, especially these important types of claims with the scriptures. So first, Jesus himself said that he was more than just 
a human being with delegated authority. After all, in John 8, 54, and I apologize that our slides aren't working this morning for the verses, but in John 8, 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him, but I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know Him and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. A little later in his ministry, the Jews tried to stone him again. Proclaiming to be God. And in John 10, 32, Jesus asked, saying, I've, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him and said, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, on many occasions, Jesus accepted the worship of his disciples and others. And contrast that with the attitude of the apostles who always rebuked people for trying to worship them on account of their miracles, right? Always said, don't worship us, we're not God. Even the angels saying, don't worship us. And speaking of the apostles, we have the lofty statements made about them or from them about Jesus where they said, like this in Titus 2.13, we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or Thomas' statement, right, in John 20, verse 28, after he examines the wounds in Jesus' resurrected hands, my Lord and my God, and Jesus does not rebuke Thomas for saying that. There's always Peter's comment in 2 Peter 1.1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there really is no question that Jesus claimed to be God and that the apostles worshipped him as God. And while it may be important to use titles like Son of God and Son of Man so as to separate the role of the Son from that of the Father, we can't allow that to have us make two gods out of one. We can't simply make one God out of the Father and then a superhuman out of the Son. Jesus, the apostles, they don't leave us that luxury. And based on our statements and the teaching of Scripture as a whole, Jesus is either God or he was sent from Satan to deceive us. There is, there is no other choice in the matter. And that, to the Pharisees' credit, is what they recognized also. They simply chose the wrong conclusion that Jesus did what he did by the power of Satan. You guys can go ahead and just leave those slides off there because it's not being controlled up here. Is Jesus God? It's a good question. Some groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons say that the word was a God, different from the Father. However, they would violate other theological statements in the scriptures, right? 
If we say that the Father is a God and the Son is another God, then we are inevitably creating what? A universe of multiple gods. Just like the pagan cultures. And the Bible is clear on that point that there is only one God. Therefore, if Jesus is God, he must be the God. And as I read a bit ago from John 8, 58, he must in some way be the great I am that once spoke to Moses out of the bush. Judaism denies that, says that there is only one person in the Godhead, that is the Father alone. But because of the testimony of the scriptures, the evidence of the life of Jesus, even statements within the Old Testament, Christians have come to understand that there is complexity in that one God. God exists as three persons, all sharing the same divine essence so that there is one God, three persons. Is that too complicated? It certainly is complicated and complex, but wouldn't we expect God to be complex? John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's complex, complicated. In his gospel, John describes the preexistent Son of God as the Word. That was a great title for John to use. And when he says, in the beginning, what is he referring to? In the beginning of what? It is not just in the beginning of the earthly life of Jesus, like we find in Matthew and in Luke. John doesn't start his gospel with a manger. He starts with the creation. Eternity passed. And just like Genesis says, in the beginning, you'll note that John doesn't say that that was uh, the start of the word, because John says, in the beginning was... The word, and when he uses that verb, he's using it in what's called the imperfect tense, which means that there was this continuous action in the past up to that point and continuing on from that point. So in the beginning, all the way in the beginning, even before the heavens and the earth were created, the word already was, is what he's saying in John chapter 1. The word was and was continuing to be. There never was a time that he was not. And we're told in Colossians 1, 16, 17, because of that, that by Christ, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Complex? Complicated? Yes. Paul goes on to say, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But in Genesis, it says God created all things, right? Indeed, that's why we can't be confused about the fact that the New Testament claims that Jesus is mighty God. So why would God set aside for a time his divine prerogative and humble himself as Philippians 2 describes being made in the likeness of men. Why would he become the son of man only to be rejected by the very people whom he had blessed for centuries? It is a great question that leads us to the humanity of Christ, right? There's a great idea of Isaiah telling us in in chapter 9 here in our passage, unto us a child is born. As C.S. Lewis says, unto us a fetus is given. The Bible is the story of God's redemption. 
Genesis describes how God originally created us in his image, but we corrupted that image through sin. The rest of the Bible tells us how little by little, step by step, God began to bless his people with gifts that moved them closer to the dignity for which he originally created all men and women. In the days of Noah, God takes this big step and and elevates the inherent worth of mankind by saying you will not go unpunished for intentionally killing one another. If you do, you will suffer death yourself because you are destroying something that I regard as worthwhile. That was a step, more than a slug. In the days of Abraham, God took another step by setting a nation and a people apart to be his representatives in their culture, their laws, and everything. They were to be consecrated as God's people, to pray for the nations, to bring truth to the nations. And then through Moses, God appoints priests and prophets to intercede even more, to call his people back from sin, to perform sacrifice, to bring cleansing. And David, man, in the position of king, demonstrates what can happen when a king's heart belongs to the Lord and rules in justice and humility. And what we see is God slowly restoring, right, this original image. But despite all of those wondrous blessings, mankind still longs for more and needs more. And most unfortunate, imperfection cannot survive in heaven. God will not tolerate the presence of a corrupted image. And so despite all of these great steps, there remained this uncrossable gulf. It just didn't matter that you were seeing glimpses of what could be in a king, in a priest, in a prophet, in in a man that was called after God and given God's law and set apart and consecrated to be his people and temporarily cleansed. It was like you had all of these things and yet there were still the dirty garments. Still the uncleanness. It's, it's a great picture in, in Zechariah as Joshua, the high priest, you know, kind of in that image of Zechariah, he looks in, in Joshua still, even as the high priest, clothed in dirty garments. And Satan is accusing him and saying, see? But that's why we needed Christ. And it's with him where God takes the final step and he restores his image Upon earth, and we're reminded last week how Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life giving spirit. We saw how Paul calls Christ the last Adam, saying that there's this correspondence between the two. We didn't quite go into that last week, so let me just mention a few of these correspondences. First, both Adam and Christ were perfect images of God. In Genesis, sinless Adam possessed God's untainted likeness. This is before the fall. In much the same way, Paul describes Jesus in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 as the image of God. As perfect God, perfect man, Christ uniquely represented God to the world. Hebrews 1 says it even better, right? Long ago at many times in the past, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom 
he is appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So there's that correspondence there, not only with, uh, with Adam, as we're going to see in just a second, but also with that earlier passage I read from Colossians. But it, in Hebrews it goes on to say, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact, ESV says, the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. The New King James says, I, I like it even more, I think it's appropriate, the express image. The express image of God. There's no better picture, Hebrews says, of what it means to be God, like God, to be the image of God, than to see Jesus Christ. Second, Adam and Christ received similar commissions. God told Adam to multiply, to take care of the creation. His job was to be a husband and a father as well as a caretaker of the creation. What about Jesus? Well, Jesus would not be a husband and a father in a physical sense, but it's very careful. As we saw last week, we, we see the title Everlasting Father. We saw how he brings men and women into uh, the family of God, makes them adopted children of God, is very fatherly and fatherlike in the way he relates to his people. He is also called a husband, the groom of the bride, which is the church. And as far as being a caretaker, at the heart of Adam's job was a sense of controlling and watching over the creation. And certainly, as we've seen in these passages, Jesus does that. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And when Christ ascended to the Father after the resurrection, he received back that authority over all things. Third, a comparison corresponds between Adam and Christ, the second or last Adam, is that both play pivotal roles in human history. As the first image of God, Adam represents all those who followed after him. And his actions were more than personal choices for himself individually. They had consequences for every single one of his descendants. And again, as we saw last week in Romans 5.12, Paul writes, Sin came into the world through that one man, through the first Adam. and Death through sin, and so death spread to all men. That was a huge consequence. But fortunately, in that correspondence, we also have a second representative. We have the last Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And in 5.17 of Romans, we read, For if because of that one man's trespass, that death reigned through Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Only Christ is as great as and even greater than Adam. Men like Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, all played important roles in this redemptive plan. Joshua, the high priest, and more. But no one before Christ was in a position to be the last Adam. All of them, prominent figures, and yet all of them clothed in that, those corrupted robes of sin. Death clinging to them waiting to claim them, Satan accusing them, all of them. David, a perfect example that a sinful man, a murderer, an adulterer, a poor parent can yet with God's help and forgiveness be a man after God's own heart. But David, because of his sin, was not fit to be the last Adam. Nor were Abraham 
or Mo- Noah or Moses or Daniel or anyone else. Job, you name it. Only Jesus was the perfect second and last Adam. No one else has since Adam been born without a sin nature. No other person has represented the host of redeemed humanity in God's eyes. He was the beginning for the restored human race. And we cannot trust ourselves to reverse the fall, right? That was another thing that we talked about last week. Peter offering to go in Jesus' place. Jesus rebuking him for the suggestion. Because Peter and you and me, we are all just like Noah and Moses and Abraham and the others. We're not even close to Adam's equals in God's eyes. We don't begin life sinless. And as David writes in the Psalms, I was conceived in my mother's womb in sin. Can we trust other people to redeem us besides Jesus? No. And how did he accomplish that restoration? That's where we remember last week that David is also different. He may be corresponding to Adam, but he's also different than Adam. Whereas Adam and Eve fail, Jesus succeeds. He remains perfectly obedient. And it's It's amazing even as you read the Gospels in the light of what was at stake and you read through the temptations and you read how Jesus quotes the tests of Israel and how they had the opportunity to show, can we be, you know, the next Adam? Can we be the people that God has set apart to be holy outside of God's sustaining strength, outside of God? dying for us and and sacrificing for us and covering us for our sin? And the answer is no, 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 right? They continue to fail. And so Jesus, as he repeats all of these things and shows, I truly am the one who can represent my people. We can only say, thank you. Isaiah 53, he was pierced. And we put Jesus' name in there. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, like we'll talk about next week, was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And as the second sentence of our passage in 1 Timothy 3 says, Jesus was justified by the Spirit. Having suffered the penalty that we should have suffered, the Father was pleased to raise him to new life. And after he was seen by 500 people, seen by the angels, and as Paul concludes in 1 Timothy 3.16, he was then received up into glory. And in the book of Revelation, the end of the story, we see Jesus, the Lamb, the risen Lamb, the conquering Lion, who's raised to new life. And he is the head of redeemed humanity. And he brings new life to all who believe in him. Romans 6 says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In 1 Corinthians 15, 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That is good news for us. This great mystery, the incarnation that we're going to be celebrating next Sunday. God, the mighty God, incarnated into human flesh, 
He was not bound to take such a step. But he did it for the freedom of his children. But once he purposed to make us his children, the incarnation became a necessity and not just an option. It was man who had outraged the justice of a holy, perfect God. Like I said earlier, the imperfect, corrupted man could not be and dwell in the presence of the eternal, holy, righteous God for eternity. It just can't happen. It was man who had outraged that justice by sinning. It was man who was bound to honor the justice of God by bearing and paying the penalty of death. It was man who needed to be holy and righteous before God if he was to live with the Lord forever. And that is why the mighty God becomes the Son of Man. He had to be a true member of our humanity. As Hebrews 2.16 says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Adam, Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might be a merciful, faithful high priest, and to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And we all say, collectively, in hindsight, in back of that, and, and just with the the illumination of the Holy Spirit of our lives to know just how sinful we are and how great that good news is. We all say amen, and yet John 1.10 says that he was in the world and the world was made through him. Now, again, a correspondence with Colossians, a correspondence with Hebrews, and, and again, the reminder that the New Testament has no doubt on the fact that Jesus is God, Right? He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So we say amen, but his people said, die. Go away. It's a sad irony. Jesus came home to these very ones supposedly looking for the Messiah the ones whom he had created and they rejected him. And that word for did not receive means to not acknowledge as one's own, to, to completely reject. Like you being away at work or at the store and coming home to the people that you had just left and them saying we don't know who you are and slamming that door. And what makes this passage in John even more poignant as I've mentioned many times in the past that word dwelt is literally tabernacled and it, it reminds us of how God had instructed Moses to make the people build the tabernacle and in that, in that tent complex would be the Holy of Holies where the presence of God would dwell above the Ark of the Covenant And when Jesus came to his own, it was as if the Holy of Holies, Jesus himself, the very presence of God, was there in their midst. And that's why John goes on to say in his gospel, and we beheld his glory. It was as if the Holy of Holies curtain was pulled aside and we were seeing him there before us. How privileged we were when... The high priest himself was only allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year after making atonement for his sin, and nobody else could. 
And yet we dwell with him for three years. We heard his words. We slept in, alongside of him and we ate with him and, and we followed him and we served him. And we beheld his glory. Sometimes it was so perfectly manifested like in the transfiguration and other times it was just through the power of the wisdom of his words and the example of his life. But as you begin to really peel all those layers back and you imagine, wow, when we read the Gospel of Luke and we think of his parents taking him as a, as a baby into the temple, right? Here's the radiance of God's glory made manifest in human flesh. Here's the Shekinah glory incarnated. And there's this great irony of them carrying him into the temple and all the people that are serving, especially those who are in authority over the temple, they all have the Holy of Holies there, all carefully blocked off as it should have been to represent how holy God was separate from the people. But they're all going, this is where the glory would be, and yet there they are, holding the glory of God. Right in front of them, in the midst of his people, and the only ones that reckon him and welcomed him were Simeon and Anna. And everyone else just shut their doors. And yet, despite what he knew what would be rejection, yet he still chose to come and to die. And when Jesus was born, the angel declared, for there is born to you in this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord, the Messiah had come. Not only that, but he said that this was good tidings of great joy. And not just joy only, but great joy, as if this news would create the greatest possible joy in the human heart wherever it was received. That night, there was expressed boundless magnificent joy. We only have a glimpse of it now. We have the totality of God's word. We have the experience of, of history. We have our own lives. Again, like I said earlier, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We, we get a, a sense of what that joy was. It was announced that day. And that angel as much said, from this time forth there will be joy for my people. Peace and goodwill is possible between them and God. That's why unto us a child is born. People of Israel, they wanted something spectacular. A political Messiah deliver them from Roman domination. They weren't expecting the baby in the manger. Too simple then. Just as it's too simple for people today. Charles Spurgeon once said, what God does is both simple and clear, and the message to us is also simple and clear. Those who come in simple faith to the Lord Jesus Christ find great peace. And we need once again to preach that plain man's gospel. Free of speculation, centered on Christ. For my own part, the incarnate God is all my hope and trust. I have seen the world's religion at the fountainhead, and my heart is sickened within me. I come back to preach by God's help the gospel, the simple gospel of the Son of God. Jesus, Master, I take thee to be mine forever. May all in this house be led to do the same. And may they all be thine great 
May they all be thine, great Son of God, in the day of thine appearing, for thy love's sake. And Spurgeon's right, this, this great Son of God, this eternal word, become flesh, did it out of love. Did it out of a fatherly love, an everlasting father for his children. Did it as the mighty God tabernacled among, but rejected by his own people, dying a lonely death upon a cross, bearing the sins of his people outside the city as a criminal, as everyone mocked and laughed. The king of kings laying aside his nobility, embracing humiliation to share his treasure with thankless souls. That's what it's all about. As Paul says in Romans, God demonstrates his love for us and that he died for us while we were yet sinners. And yet it was more easy for him to bear our sins than to bear the thought of our hopelessness and helplessness. Dying out of love for us and for his great glory. Mighty God, manifest in the flesh. Do you understand that and do you thank him for that? Do you worship him? You must make the decision that the Pharisees faced 2,000 years ago. We saw what their reaction was. Twice they tried to stone him. Ultimately, they killed him. They rejected him. They did not acknowledge him. And yet, they were made, created through him. Is Jesus the pawn of Satan, as they said? Is he a devil? Or is he the Lord of lords and King of kings, the mighty God manifested in the flesh? If God has been working in you to bring contrition of heart, then you are not only aware of your sin, but also of the seriousness of that sin and the value of God's law. You know how enslaved you were or are to sin. You know how tarnished the image of God is within you. And if Job wasn't good enough, David, Abraham, Noah, and all the others were not good enough, neither are you. And your works are as filthy rags before the perfect standards of God. But you do not have to die for your sin. For God has put it away. In the incarnation, Jesus became man. The, man. the mighty God became man to fulfill God's righteous requirement. Isaiah says that Jesus poured out his soul into death and was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for them. Those are words of life. As Spurgeon says, not simple. You don't have to understand all of the complexities of the triune God. You do not have to understand all the complexities of the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. What you do have to understand and believe is that you're a sinner in need of the grace, gracious mercy of God and that God provided that way of redemption in Jesus. Love him. Obey him, and then come and eat at the table. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for who you are. The mighty God. And we don't understand all of these things. We don't understand how 
there can be this complexity in, in your essence. We don't understand even fully what it is to, to be a sinner thinking that we could possibly stand in your presence. It's far too easy for us to imagine that we could do enough good things, say that we're sorry enough times and ask for your forgiveness that that all would be well on, on the merit of those works. And yet, Lord, something more significant had to be done. And you did that for us. So we not only thank you for your mercy towards us, we thank you that despite the fact that your people rejected you and did not acknowledge you, that they were sinners that you decided to die for them for what you would make of them. That you loved us enough that you would do that. And as a result, you are glorified. Your people are redeemed. We are able to stand now in, in the presence of all the mighty angels the glorified saints, but most importantly in your presence, cleansed by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that, and we pray that you would help us to believe the simple gospel. And may that good news transform us into a humble, meek, forgiving people, the very attributes of the fruit of the Spirit that we saw earlier. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.